You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Well, hello. My name is Mick Sullivan, and welcome to The Past and the Curious. This is episode 80. It's a great episode. Um, It's all about plants uh, and some really cool stories about people who either made a difference with plants or plants made a difference in their lives, which is really cool. Um, First off, uh, I lost my voice, which is why I'm kind of scrambling to get this episode out. Recorded the stories before I lost my voice, so that's good. But all the other extra stuff, um, I'm a little hoarse, so sorry about that. The first story is about a man named Fabian Garcia, uh, a Mexican immigrant who really changed the face of agriculture in New Mexico. And a really interesting story. And I actually got to talk in real life to um, a man named Shahab who works at the Fabian Garcia Research Center in New Mexico, uh, which was fascinating. And the other story is about a man named Elliot Michener. And I have to thank a listener, Lindsay Bear, for uh, suggesting this. It's great when people suggest things. And you know what? Sometimes someone offers the right suggestion at the right time. Anyway, here's episode 80 of The Past and the Curious. For hundreds of years, the Pueblo people of New Mexico grew chili peppers. Some were hot. Some were hotter. Some might resemble chilies that you might find today. But truthfully, there was a vast difference in taste, shape, durability, and spiciness from town to town and crop to crop and tongue to tongue. Anyone who's ever eaten a chili knows that you don't want to roll the dice. It's better that you have a fair idea of what you're putting into your mouth. Otherwise, you might wind up with something hotter than a sunburnt scorpion on a desert cactus at high noon in June. Thankfully, at the turn of the 1900s, along came a man with a chili pepper obsession and a brilliant mind to change farming and spicy foods forever. His name was Fabian Garcia. But when he first came along, he wasn't a man at all. He was a baby. Yes, everyone is a baby at one point or another. And Fabian Garcia was no different. He first became a baby in 1871, and his baby days were spent in Chihuahua, Mexico. But after the tragic death of both parents, the young boy fell into the care of his grandmother, Doña Jacoba. In search of opportunity, she brought the boy across the border to the American territory that would later become New Mexico. While in New Mexico, Fabian encountered Apache people, Pueblo people, American settlers, and many fellow Mexicans who had either come north, like himself, or else lived in the area before it was ceded to America in the treaty that ended the Mexican-American War in 1848. And this land was filled with a diverse collection of people, all of whom were trying to make a life in the relatively dry, hot, and wide-open lands that they found themselves in. Doña Jacoba worked for several households, but her decision to take a job with the powerful Kassad family would change her grandson's life. They were wealthy, believed in education, and took young Fabian under their wing. Thanks to them, he had tutors and a solid education, which put him in a good position for college. 
and the very same year he was ready to enroll, a new school opened in his area, Las Cruces College, which still stands today, and now it is known as New Mexico State University. He was the first Mexican student to enroll at the school for classes. At the time, it was an agricultural college, and much of his learning centered around the natural world around him. But it was more than just plants and animals for Fabian. He became president of the school's chapter of the Columbian Literary Society. He played on the football team. And at some point, Fabian earned a reputation as one of the best marbles players New Mexico had seen. After graduating in 1894, as a member of the school's very first graduating class, he continued studies for a year at Cornell in New York, and then he returned to Las Cruces. Back on campus at his first college, which had recently been renamed New Mexico College of Agriculture and Mechanic Arts, he originally was employed as assistant in agriculture. But over the years, he would become professor of horticulture, and then eventually the director of the experimental station. And if that last part sounds cutting edge, well, it was. In this position, it was Fabian's mission to selectively breed plants that could thrive in the New Mexico environment in hopes that farmers in the area could raise them for crop and find a way to make the most out of their land, fill bellies in the area, and earn money to keep farming. But there were no simple solutions for success in the sandy soil of New Mexico. So it took lots of experimentation from the director of the experimental station. He introduced new strains of onion and planted the very first pecan trees in New Mexico. Both of those are still huge crops in the state. But it was his chilies that made the greatest impact. His experiments began around the turn of the century and continued for decades. That's a lot of time thinking about spicy peppers, and it stands to reason that during this process he ate his fair share too. Kinda goes with the job. Did Fabian Garcia eat more peppers than any other man of his time? Well, we just don't know, but seems like a reasonable assumption. He's responsible for more peppers being grown in southwestern America than anyone else. That much is for sure. Most peppers that had been grown in the area were pretty spicy. And if New Mexico wanted the pepper to be a crop that Americans would consume, well, they were going to have to make it at least a little milder. But if we're being honest, they probably need to be a lot milder. American palates at the time were mostly, well, weak sauce when it came to heat. So that was one of Fabian's main goals. Figure out how to make a tasty pepper that wasn't too spicy for American tongues, but it also had to be consistent in size and shape for canning. It had to grow well in the conditions of New Mexico and be easy for farmers to harvest. If all of this happened, New Mexican farmers might have a new cash crop on their hands. But this was a lot to consider, and nothing happens fast in farming. These types of experiments are very slow. It's not like mixing two chemicals and watching an explosion. In a time before greenhouses were common, researchers like Fabian had to grow plants, determine which of the plants had the qualities they liked, crossbreed those, and hope that the traits, like size, color, shape, spiciness, all came through in the new round of seeds and the next season's crops. Much was in control of the scientist, but much was in control of fate and Mother Nature. He worked for years with the help of students and fellow employees until finally, in 1921, after years of painstaking work, he gave the world 
and more specifically, New Mexico, its important crop. A chili, he called New Mexico, number nine. New Mexico, number nine. Number nine. New Mexico, number nine. It was a perfect crop in so many ways. It looked nice. Such a beautiful chili. Number nine. It looks plump, red. It thrived in the New Mexico environment. Number, Number nine. nine. Perfect for the amount of rain. Easy to Easy harvest. To harvest. Just, just right for the soil. Oh, and the size. Number, Number nine. nine. Perfect in that way, too. Do you like heat? I like Goldilocks heat. Whatever you do, you mean. Not too much, but not too little. Ah, just right. Number nine. Heat my tongue, New Mexico. 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 His experiments worked. Fabian Garcia knew that with the New Mexico number nine chili, he could change the fortune of farmers all around. Native people, recent arriving Anglo-Americans, fellow Mexican immigrants could all grow this chili and find a market and great profit, and it was sustainable on their land. In this day and age, it could be difficult to spread the word about something new, but over the years, Fabian did many creative things. He wrote articles, he went on the radio, and he spoke regularly in public about the chili, promising that it would bring profit, progress, and prosperity for anyone who planted it. There was even a train tour, rail cars filled with new tools, technology, and experts, and Fabian and his team traveled on these cars where they would not just share the excitement and the potential of the seeds, but share something even more valuable. So I see we're traveling with all these chili pepper seeds from town to town. It sure seems like a lot of seeds. Senor Garcia, what do you intend for me to do with this huge batch of number nine chili seeds? Give it away. Give this new product, these chili peppers, away for free? Give it away. Give it away? Give it away. Give it away. Give it away. Give it away now. Well, okay then. And that's the kind of guy Fabian Garcia was. He knew the chili pepper would change lives and the very face and fortune of New Mexico agriculture. And that it did. Still today, chili peppers are one of the most important products of the state. And his breakthrough chili, the New Mexico number nine, is the genetic ancestor of nearly every chili grown in New Mexico today. He knew this could only happen if everyone understood and had access. So he made it easy. He spent lots of energy teaching people. And he was always careful to educate both in English and in Spanish. It was very important for him to help young Mexican immigrants in the area, and he often helped them with places to live, tuition, and he offered jobs and training. In fact, when he died in 1948, he left his entire estate to the university, which was now known as New Mexico State University. And he stipulated that his money be used to aid in the living quarters and education of Mexican students at the university. That is quite a legacy. But it's not his only one by a long shot. Still today, chili research continues on campus. Only now it's not called the research station, it's called the Fabian Garcia Research Center. I actually owe a debt of gratitude to a man named Shahab Nurbaksh. He works at the research center and feels a strong sense of connection to Dr. Garcia. From Shahab, I learned that some of the experimentation today is concerned with creating chili strains that are easily harvestable by machines. 
Today, farmers have found that manual labor is increasingly difficult to count on, and many farms have seen chilies wither on the vine because they could not be harvested in time. So the scientists working with chilies are collaborating with mechanical engineers on campus to solve some of this problem mechanically. Fabian Garcia would certainly not be surprised that the work is ongoing, but Shahab also helped me understand that breeding optimum crops is a long-term generational pursuit. Things can always change because of disease, changing climates, and even social and political conditions. You might not think that it runs that deep when you bite into a pepper or put some hot sauce on your food, but everything is connected, and many things are connected to Fabian Garcia, even a century later. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, this month's You Have 30 Seconds from Bravery Siervo is uh, kind of mind-blowing. I'm glad it's not me. Hi, my name is Bravery Cervo. I live in San Diego, California, and I'm 11 years old. Today, I'm going to tell you about Charles Osborne and the case of hiccups. Charles Osborne was born in 1894 and died in 1991. He was 28 years old, and somehow he got the hiccups while weighing a pig. He hiccuped 20 to 40 times per minute for 69 straight years. It's estimated that he hiccuped roughly 430 million times in his life. Thankfully, in 1990, the hiccup stops. He was able to live his last year of life hiccup-free. He was 97 years old. Bye, McSullivan. I love your show. Thanks. I love your You Have 30 Seconds. Great job. But holy cow, I hate having the hiccups for any period of time. 20 minutes of hiccups will drive me mad. That poor guy. I, I guess he learned to live with it and had a great great life nonetheless. Uh, so if you have a you have a you have a you have a have a 30 seconds, all you need to do is record it on a smart device or, you know, iPad, computer, something like that. Very easy. Make sure it's 30 seconds long. Tell a great story and send it to us via email. My carrier pigeon is in the shop. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Yes, we've arrived at that magical segment of every show that we call Quiz Time. Your first question. Chili peppers are hot because of a chemical called capsaicin, which can burn and irritate most creatures that eat it, but not all. 
Do you know what kind of creature, a kind that you probably see every day, is not affected by capsaicin? Birds are completely immune to the effects of chili peppers. It is because of this that these seeds originally traveled long distances. Birds would eat them, poop them out, and not even know that they were transporting such spicy seeds. It is also for this reason that people will spray bird feeders and seeds with pepper water. The birds don't even know it's there, but the squirrels hate it. And it keeps them from eating all the bird seed. Question number two. A pharmacist, whose first name was Wilbur, decided the world needed a rating scale to measure the heat of chili peppers. So he developed a scientific one of his own. Now a standard among fans and scientists of spice, this scale uses Wilbur's last name. What is the name of the scale that they use to measure chili pepper hotness or heat? Heatness, hotness, heat. I don't know, what is it? Wilbur Scoville's method of measuring heat rates the spiciness of peppers in Scoville heat units. And the variety is pretty wide. A typical bell pepper is 1 to 100 Scoville units, no big deal. But a Carolina Reaper pepper, which is wildly hot and totally scary if you ask me, can be over 2 million Scoville units. Not recommended for the faint of heart. Or tongue. Okay. Your third and final question. Our next story takes place on Alcatraz Island, where criminal Al Capone spent some time. While there, he played an instrument in the band. What instrument did Al Capone play? He played the mandolin. He was also on laundry duty, as you might recall from a previous episode. This story, however, is about a criminal who changed his way of life on Alcatraz Island with the help of a garden. Okay, let's get one thing straight. Elliot Michener was not the kind of person you'd want to look up to, at least not during the first part of his life in the early 1900s. The Idaho-born young man had a bad habit of getting into trouble. Even before he had reached adulthood, he had been arrested for stealing loads of money from his father's company. As a result, the teenager found himself in a jail cell as he awaited being sent to an industrial reform school. Schools like these were common at the time, and they were a whole complicated and questionable institution meant to deal with kids who got into trouble. Even minor trouble in some cases. Elliot's crime wasn't very minor, though but he still did not like the idea of a future that involved working all day, making tools that would be sold to free people while he labored for no pay. So when the boy spied a long stick on the other side of the jail cell bars, just within reach of his outstretched hands, he made a plan. The stick was step one. He also spied an unsecure set of keys within stick reach. The keys were step two. Soon enough, the keys were his, and as soon as they were, he was gone. That was step three. He didn't exactly clean up his life after successfully executing his three-step plan. In the years ahead, Elliot robbed a train or two, and in doing so, he stole thousands of dollars from U.S. mailbags the train had carried. 
He was also notorious for passing bad checks, and in doing so, he left a trail across the northern states of angry people with no way to get the money that he had cheated them out of. Then came counterfeiting. Why go through all the trouble, he figured, rather than take money, or promise money with checks that he'd never deliver, it would be far easier to just print his own fake money and fool people into believing it was real. It should go without saying that this is bad and illegal and not good and totally wrong and don't do it. But Elliot made yet another poor decision and soon enough, the law caught up to him. He found himself in a more secure prison. But even the more secure prison in Oregon couldn't hold him. The wily young man slipped out and into the free air once again, where more checks were forged and more money was counterfeited. His stolen freedom, just like his stolen money, would not last long. In 1936, Elliot was arrested for counterfeiting, yet again, this time in Minnesota, and he was sent to Leavenworth Prison in Kansas. Leavenworth was a tough place, and authorities figured it would be significantly more difficult to escape from for Elliot. Were they right? They were, well, kind of right. He certainly tried, but was ultimately unsuccessful. Not wanting to take any further chances, they sent him west to the relatively new and ominously secure Alcatraz prison. Famously the final home to criminal and silk underwear aficionado Al Capone, Alcatraz is an island just over a mile off the coast of San Francisco, California. The frigid and rough waters made it nearly impossible for anyone to escape without a boat, which made it a great place to put a maximum security prison. The gigantic, bleak, stony protrusion in the foggy ocean had been an American fort during the Civil War, and home to the first lighthouse in the area, before the first prisoners stepped on shore. What those prisoners found was an unwelcoming place, devoid of nearly any green plants, or other life for that matter. And this is the world that Elliot Michener entered in 1941. In a place like Alcatraz, there were jobs to do. Prisoners did not spend all day in their cells because all necessary daily work was done by the inmates. Laundry duty was not fun. Washing an entire island's worth of dirty prison clothes is probably as bad as it sounds. And working in the kitchen wasn't much fun either. But fun wasn't really the point. Nevertheless, there was recreation time, which was probably the closest thing to fun on the island, and this inevitably involved balls and other game pieces going over a fence on occasion. One of Elliot's jobs was walking the gray, rough, and rocky terrain to retrieve lost handballs and such. No doubt it gave him a chance to get a lay of the land and consider how he might make an escape if the opportunity ever presented itself. He was, after all, Pretty good at prison escape by now, but Alcatraz was different. One day, his best chance came along. During his regular handball hunt, he happened to come across some keys. Now, Elliot knew very well that keys in a jail typically meant one thing, freedom. Perhaps Elliot knew from looking at the cold, rough ocean around him that even with the keys, it wouldn't be so easy to get out. Or maybe he had begun to change even then. 
As the story goes, Elliot picked up the keys and gave them to a prison guard. With this act, a new responsibility came Elliot's way. He was offered a job on Alcatraz Island that would change his life and the island for the better. They asked if Elliot had ever tended a garden. He had not. Did he know anything about flowers? He did not. But was he willing to learn? Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? Starting with very little besides some rusty tools and a little bit of soil on the rocky island, Elliot was given a few seed packets. The seeds came with instructions. Nothing much. Just general info about spacing, planting time, how often to water. Honestly, it's amazing that the plant survived. Think about it. In the 1940s, it would have been extremely difficult to even get fresh water on the island in the middle of the Pacific. That's why he convinced prison guards to let him use leftover bath water for the new Alcatraz garden. What he couldn't figure out for himself, he learned from a few books on site, or else from other inmates, plenty of whom had tended a plant or two during their time on the outside. Before long, a funny thing happened. Things started growing. The garden started looking nice. And Elliot became really invested in his work. It was rewarding interesting, and it gave him something positive to pour himself and all of his idle energy into. With the help of other inmates, he used stones to build terracing, thereby creating a multi-level garden. And he convinced guards who traveled to nearby San Francisco to bring back new plants, seeds, even soil. Eventually, the garden became a thing of true beauty in an otherwise dreary and bleak place which was often filled with misery and turmoil. But best of all, Elliot felt good about it, and he earned respect from inmates and prison staff alike. After nearly seven years of dedicated and trustworthy work, a new opportunity came Elliot's way. The warden, a man named Swope, lived on the island, and based on his self-taught plant life expertise, he asked Elliot to come create a similar garden at his home. Soon, Elliot spent hours there, almost every day, excited about new rose bushes and eager to learn more about tending gardens over a long period of time. Elliot even became friends with the warden's wife. They had similar taste in music and an interest in horse racing. Everything was rosy for Elliot until he found out that the federal government was transferring him back to Leavenworth Prison. He loved his garden, and it brought him the closest thing to happiness that he had known since his days in prison. He knew there was nothing of the sort waiting for him in Kansas. He actually didn't want to leave Alcatraz, and he longed for it once he wound up back in Leavenworth. Warden Swope did what he could to help keep Elliot and Alcatraz for the remainder of his sentence, but it was not possible. Still, the men kept in touch through mail, and Swope's faith in Elliot, combined with his own good behavior in Leavenworth, helped land Elliot an early parole. While still under the eye of the government and subject to regular checks, he was granted a work release. Where else but on a farm? For several years, he worked on a Wisconsin dairy farm, which allowed him some freedom and time to grow. Again, through the mail, he asked his former warden for a different kind of help. Now he wanted a cutting from his favorite Alcatraz Island rosebush, so he could stay connected to that pivotal part of his life. After a few years, Elliot was completely cleared by the government. They considered him reformed and granted him total freedom. 
He got married, moved to Southern California, and worked the land once again. He mostly fell off the radar of the historical record for decades, but he was interviewed on a return visit to Alcatraz Island in his later years. He died in 1997, but it seems that the skills he learned kept him gardening for the remainder of his life, and his passions never seemed to falter. Planting a few seeds changed and maybe even saved Elliot's life. The federal prison at Alcatraz was closed in 1963, and soon after it became the site of a long-term public demonstration. Initially, a group of Native Americans were led by a Lakota Sioux woman named Belva Cartier. They began living on the island, claiming it as their own. By the end of the decade, another protest occupation saw the island inhabited by hundreds more Native Americans with several different tribal affiliations for nearly two years. One point of the protest was based in the Treaty of Fort Laramie from way back in 1868. This treaty between the U.S. and Native Lakota created an official Great Sioux Reservation which included the Black Hills lands of the Dakotas. It also stated that any federal forts which the United States decommissioned would be given to those Native people. So, with Alcatraz, the former fort turned prison officially abandoned by the government, this diverse group of Native Americans intended to force the American government to make good on a promise that was 101 years old. Their bigger concern, though, was that many of the tribes were losing their ability to self-govern and make decisions about their reserved lands. After years of protest, an agreement was reached and many of the Native people's demands were met. In 1972, Alcatraz Island was purchased by the National Park Service, and it has become a major tourist attraction. Throughout the years, efforts have been made to preserve and revitalize the gardens that Elliot and his fellow inmates worked so hard to cultivate. There has been much success, and visitors to the island are often struck by the beauty of the work done on the craggy, desolate island in the Pacific. Even though he is gone, Elliot's original beloved roses are still there, and they should remain there for generations to come. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of The Past and the Curious. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I've got some people to thank right now. First off, um, Genevieve and Ethan Holsclaw were the voices that you heard in the middle of the uh, Chili Pepper segment where it turned into the Beatles' weird um, Revolution 9 bit, which I'm kind of fond of. You did a great job, Ethan and Genevieve. The Holsclaws, I've known them for years. Great creative kids. It's been real fun to watch them grow up. So thank you for your help. Um, Also, huge, 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 huge debt of gratitude to uh, Shahab Norbaksh from New Mexico State University. Um, Had a great conversation with him, thanks to my friend Joe, who is a mutual friend of ours. Um, And I learned so much about uh, how you know, how they grow chili peppers and all of the research that's been involved and all of the years and all of the time and all of the incredible expertise. Um, That was really great to get that perspective. But also, Shahab had a great perspective as an immigrant to the United States, um, which was really fascinating to get as well. 
and he was kind enough to send me some hot sauces that they have for sale at New Mexico State University and all the profit, the proceeds, the benefit, um, the research facility, which is awesome. And one of them is named Fabian's Fuego, which would be Fabian's Fire. And it is really good. It's not it's not super hot, um, but I highly recommend it. I'm going to post a link because I enjoyed it so much. So um, keep an eye out for that. There's some Patreon people to thank. Um, an old Patreon person, Lindsay Bear. Um, it was your suggestion of this children's book by Emma Bland Smith called The Gardener of Alcatraz that led to this. It was the perfect match for this episode and I was looking for something and it came at the right time. So thank you so much. Um, okay, new Patreon people. Jude McCarty in Seattle, hello to you. I'm so glad that you are out there. Colin, Everett, and Jill in Cypress, Texas. Hey to you too. It's so awesome that you all listen to the show and enjoy it. Um, Remus and Laszlo, thank you for joining Patreon. I have something special coming for you next month, so stay tuned for that. Um, also, uh, Stella has a birthday later in August. I have a song for Stella coming up in just a moment. But I won't. Oh, yeah. Um, Beckett Briggs in North Carolina. I got a great note from uh, your, uh, your, your parent about... Um, your visit to North, to Washington, D.C. to do uh, several different competitions. I think it was a Geography Bee. So awesome to hear about. So glad that you enjoy the show. So glad we make a difference in all of your lives. Everyone, if you're interested in Patreon, um, that will be the ad-free way to get the show going forward. So keep that in mind. Without further ado, here's a song for Stella. Everything's stellar when Stella's around. Everything's swell when Stella's found. People want to yell when Stella comes around Stella's coming around right now It's hard to decide what to do with all our time Surely we could play ice hockey We could go roller derby But skating around the rink It really gives you time to think Who's the most interesting person in your mind? Earhart Einstein Is it Amelia Earhart or Albert Einstein? Earhart Einstein Today it's Thanks, everybody. I'm Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and the Curious. Hopefully next month, I will have my voice back.